Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, fallout from a U.S. attack in Syria after a drone strike that killed an American and wounded others. The president took very swift action to retaliate against uh, that strike. TikTok CEO testifies on Capitol Hill. We do not trust TikTok will ever embrace American values. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a nonprofit for black women farmers wants help from the Biden administration. We need to speak to President Biden. We want 30 minutes on equity and inclusion. I'm Allison Keyes in the Washington Bureau. A series of attacks on American forces in Syria raised tensions in the region as one American and six others are hurt at a coalition military base there. A Britain-based war monitor says 14 pro-Iranian fighters were killed in a retaliatory strike by U.S. forces. U.S. military officials say the main air defense system at the coalition base wasn't fully operational when the drone hit, and there's an investigation underway. CBS's Nicole Skanga. President Biden took time during his trip to Canada to order an airstrike on terrorist groups in Syria, which reportedly targeted a warehouse, munitions factory, and intelligence site. The move was in retaliation for a drone strike. The president took uh, a very swift action to retaliate against uh, that strike, and we also hit uh, a facility uh, not far away uh, that we know is being uh, operated by the by the IRGC, the Quds Force in Iran. U.S. officials confirmed there was a second attack on a U.S. base Friday, this time in eastern Syria, not far from the Iraqi border. They say the attack involved lots of rockets, but there were no American casualties. American officials say the Syrian groups that carried out the attack were affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard, and the drone used in the attack was made in Iran. We certainly don't seek a a, a war or conflict with Iran. That's not the goal. We're there to go after ISIS, but we have to do what we have to do to protect our people and our facilities, and that's the the decision-making that the president made. The U.S. Central Command, which oversees military operations in the area, said, we are postured for scalable options in the face of any additional Iranian attacks. Syria remains locked in a civil war which has been going on for the last 12 years. Iran is one of the few countries supporting the Syrian government. Nicole Skanga, CBS News, the White House. Former President Trump warned Friday of potential death and destruction if he is charged in a criminal case related to alleged hush money payments to a porn star. He claimed last week that he would be arrested Tuesday, which didn't happen, and no charges have been filed so far. CBS News investigative reporter Graham Cates is in Manhattan with the latest. No, that, that hasn't happened yet, although this week in the, in, uh, the courts here have gotten two uh, hoax bomb threats. And and on Friday morning, 
uh, an envelope with white powder caused police to come to the district attorney's office. Uh, but uh, there were no injuries, no evacuation or anything along those lines. So are there worries about violence? It's, well, basically on Saturday, he urged people to come out and protest if this indictment and arrest that he said would happen Tuesday, but didn't. You know, are, are people really worried about the probability of violence here or possibility, I should say? The evidence of the police taking that seriously is everywhere. Uh, there are barricades uh, covering all of the blocks around the courthouse and the district district attorney's office. And uh, even things like the, the garbage cans outside block by block around the district attorney's office have all been removed. There's a really heavy police presence, a lot of uniformed officers um, constantly patrolling. But on the other hand, the, the protest itself was very small. There were, at no point this week has there been more than a couple of dozen people protesting for or against former President Trump. So can you explain to the general public what the deal is with this hush money payment? Because it's more complicated than that. Right. This was a $130,000 wire uh, made in the, uh, just a few days before the 2016 presidential election. And the money itself was initially paid for by Michael Cohen. He's a former lawyer and fixer for Donald Trump. And as he describes it, they were worried that if Stormy Daniels, the adult film star, talked about uh, an alleged affair in the run-up to this election, that it might cost former President Trump the election. Uh, of course, Trump denies having the affair. Uh, he um, denies any wrongdoing in this. He, he has acknowledged that the payment happened, but not that he did anything illegal um, as part of that. Okay, so at this point, it sounds like we just will need to wait and see, and that's probably through next week. At the, at the very least, we, don't, we, don't, we know that this week is ending without there being a, a, any charges. CBS's Graham Cates. A disturbing update now on that nationwide eyedrop recall linked to drug-resistant bacteria infections. They are made in India and sold on websites, including Amazon. The CDC now says at least three people have died, eight have lost vision, and four have had to have an eye surgically removed. Adam DeZaro is a fire captain in Naples, Florida. For years, he'd use artificial tears for dryness in his left eye without a problem, until last fall. The redness came on, the irritation came on, a lot of itching, and it was abnormal. What happened to your eye? It just progressively got worse to a point where I couldn't even see um, within a few hours. Unable to treat it with antibiotics, doctors feared he'd lose his eye. That was, and it still is, uh, hard because I'm still not at work going on five months. The CDC is investigating a nationwide outbreak of the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, Pseudonomus aeruginosa, which has infected 68 people in 16 states. It's warning against using Ezracare or Delsum Pharma artificial tears, which have been recalled. It's a very aggressive bacteria, and even with standard of care, we were not uh, helping the patients. Dr. Guillermo Amesqua of the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami treated DeZaro with an experimental light treatment that finally killed the infection. If you're using an artificial tear and you notice that something is not right, just, you know, go see your IK provider. The CDC says symptoms can include discharge, pain, redness, light sensitivity, and blurry vision. To use eye drops safely, in general, people should wash their hands and keep the tip of the bottle sterile. 
CBS News reached out to EzraCare and Amazon where Desaro purchased the eye drops, but they had no comment. Desaro is suing for negligence and hopes in the meantime, surgery will restore his sight. Manuel Bojorquez, CBS News, Naples, Florida. It seems your mom was right all those times she told you not to wear raggedy socks. Tourists who visit Westminster Abbey after King Charles' coronation will be allowed to stand in the exact spot where he's crowned. So no shoes allowed. The Abbey will offer small guided barefoot tours where you can stand on the recently refinished Cosmati pavement. It's quite the beautiful reveal considering it's been hidden under carpets for decades. This spot and the chair they're using in the coronation go back some 700 years. So it's worth having no holes in your socks. Jennifer Brown, CBS News. Coming up, featuring a first for Women's History Month. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The head of TikTok was on the hot seat on Capitol Hill for more than five hours on Thursday, trying to defend his embattled social media program. We do not trust TikTok will ever embrace American values. From the beginning, Shozi Chu, the CEO of the most downloaded app in the past two years, faced intense scrutiny. My time is up, and if this committee gets its way, TikTok's time is up. The TikTok executive tried to reassure lawmakers with a commitment to safety. There are more than 150 million Americans who love our platform, and we know we have a responsibility to protect them. And he insisted the video sharing platform is not an arm of the Chinese government, despite being owned by parent company ByteDance, based in Beijing. Has ByteDance spied on American citizens? I don't think the spying is the right way to describe it. Chu said the company is working to build a firewall dubbed Project Texas to store and protect user data in the U.S. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. I find that actually preposterous. Lawmakers also pressed Chu on harmful content aimed at younger users, from buying drugs on the app to dangers of some TikTok challenges and videos promoting eating disorders and suicidal behavior. Our kids are at risk on your platform. The Nazca family attended the hearing. Their 16-year-old son died by suicide after viewing disturbing videos served up on the platform. I would just like to see uh, mainly the, the stopping um, of, of promoting these types of videos that my son was getting. President Biden has banned the app on government devices along with at least two dozen states. Does this put TikTok closer to a complete ban? Absolutely. I think it was pretty clear that the Congress is unified uh, in terms of opposing TikTok. Congress is considering at least three bills that would further restrict TikTok or implement a nationwide ban. After the hearing, the company accused the House panel of political grandstanding and warned a ban could violate the First Amendment and hurt the livelihoods of millions of its users. Nicole Killian, CBS News, Capitol Hill. 
Utah is the first state to require parental consent before kids can access social media apps. In a video message posted on his website, Governor Spencer Cox said, As leaders and as parents, we have a responsibility to protect our young people. That's why he signed a pair of laws that require parental consent before kids can sign up for sites like TikTok and Instagram. The laws also restrict the hours they can spend online. Social media companies know their products are toxic. They designed their apps to be addictive. While those laws don't go into effect until March of 2024, Governor Cox says they send a strong message. Our administration is very concerned about how social media is affecting our children. Linda Kenyon, CBS News. Senators laid into Norfolk Southern CEO this week as residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are still terrified nearly seven weeks since that toxic train derailment. This was a preventable accident. Do you agree? Yes, I do agree. And Back in the Senate hot seat. For decades, the railroads have lobbied to undermine safety rules. They're still at it. Nearly seven weeks after a Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, spewing toxic chemicals. I want to open by stating how deeply sorry I am for the impact this derailment has had. CEO Alan Shaw said he supports some aspects of the bipartisan Senate bill tightening rules on rail safety including additional funding for training, mandatory defect detectors on tracks, and requirements to notify first responders of hazardous materials on rail cars. None of us knew exactly what dangers were on that train. East Palestine resident Misty Allison testified that her town and family are still living in fear. My seven-year-old has asked me if he is going to die from living in his own home. What do I tell him? Back in East Palestine, cleanup continues. The EPA says nearly 8 million gallons of wastewater have been shipped out for treatment and more than 8,000 tons of contaminated soil. But the agency says the air and municipal water are safe for now. Do you want to be bought out of your home by Norfolk Southern? Yes. Still, resident Joe Samick says his daughter has been getting rashes. You know, I feel safe being here and here we are stuck because we can't afford to just stop and leave. Samek and his neighbors live less than a mile from the derailment site here in East Palestine, but technically outside city limits, so they don't qualify for compensation. But Norfolk Southern says it's working with Samek to find a solution. Roxana Saberi, CBS News, East Palestine, Ohio. Should you really have that second cup of coffee? A new study from the University of California at San Francisco finds coffee lovers have higher physical activity levels with an average of a thousand extra steps a day. Researchers say their work shows coffee consumption does not increase abnormal heartbeats associated with blood clots, stroke and heart failure, but it is linked to sleep disruption. CBS's Deborah Rodriguez. Now for Women's History Month, we introduce you to Melissa Ward, an Air Force pioneer who's also the first black female captain for a major U.S. airline. You need to pull back a little bit. Whether it's inside a United Airlines flight simulator or flying the friendly skies, Melissa Ward has soared to new heights in aviation during her more than three decades long career. You know, I never started my career thinking I'm going to trailblaze. I I always just felt like I was going to do my job. In 1998, she became the first black woman captain at United Airlines and the first in the U.S. to fly commercial airplanes. But even before flying with United, she was a pioneer, the only woman to graduate in her Air Force pilot training class and the first black woman instructor pilot in the Air Force. People 
saw me in my flight suit and they were like, wait a minute, are you here for pilot training? I'm like, yes. They're like, we've never seen anyone like you. So that was the first time I had an awareness that uh, this was something uh, groundbreaking. She is now dedicated to bringing other women along for the ride. There is something about trailblazing that's important. And it's not about uh, the status for yourself, but it's about the opportunities for people behind you. She plays a part in the ascension of female pilots. She is a flight evaluator at United's Flight Training Center and helps recruit through the United Aviate Academy. The flight school plans to train at least 5,000 new pilots by 2030, with the goal of at least half of them being women or people of color. My job was to make the road wider. And then the people behind me, the, the job is to make the road smoother. And so it should continue on and continue on until there are no more roads anyway. You know, and, and no one is talking about this because we've done it all. Go back a little bit. And she's cleared the runway for the next generation of black women pilots to know this flight path is possible. Donya Backus, CBS News, Los Angeles. Also making history, a New Orleans university named its first black president in its 111-year history this week, WGNO-TV's LBJ. As a new leader of Loyola University in New Orleans, the Board of Trustees has named Xavier Cole the president of the Jesuit institution, replacing former president Tanya Tetlow. Cole is the first person of color and the second layperson to lead the school. Cole is from Biloxi and joins the staff from Marquette University. Coming up, a new worry about cryptocurrency. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. There's a new worry about cryptocurrency as authorities say Bitcoin of America kiosk are being used to steal millions from victims. The company and its leaders are now facing criminal charges. CBS's Jerika Duncan. In his 84 years of life, artist Joe Samuels never thought he'd fall victim to a scam. It was crazy. It put me in the hospital for a week. I've never been sick in a day in my life. In October of 2021, Samuels thought he was calling his computer company's IT department. During the call, he granted someone access to fix his computer remotely, and it worked. But a couple of months later, he says he got a call from someone claiming to be from the same IT department. He says they told him that they accidentally deposited $20,000 into Samuels' checking account and demanded he send it back through a Bitcoin ATM. And they're telling me calling me because you got to pay us back. Otherwise, we're going to get the FBI. Fearful of what could happen next, Samuels did as he was instructed and deposited $20,000 cash into this Bitcoin of America kiosk, just blocks away from his apartment in Hartford, Connecticut. Days later, Samuel soon realized the scammers moved his own money from his savings account into his checking account. Your reaction the moment you learned you had been scammed? I was pissed. Right now, there are more than 32,000 crypto ATMs across the country. That's up from roughly 1,000 in 2018. The machines look like normal ATMs, but when a customer deposits cash, it's converted to digital cryptocurrency. And instead of being routed to a traditional bank account, it goes to a digital wallet where a third party can later cash in. Connecticut State Police Detective Matthew Hogan specializes in cryptocurrency and financial crimes. He believes many of these machines are intentionally placed in neighborhoods with higher crime rates. I think they're strategically placed 
on purpose because they're getting a higher percentage of use in those locations of high crime. CNET cybersecurity expert Bree Fowler says crypto ATMs pose a unique risk because they are often unregulated and many are unlicensed. They're, you know, on some levels, not any different than a, than a soda or a candy machine. If you see one of these things, just don't use them right now. CBS News reached out to Bitcoin of America for comment on the indictment and did not hear back. The company's CEO also hasn't responded to our request for comment. Now, Bitcoin of America's website has since shut down. The crypto kiosk Samuels used was seized, and Hartford Police tell CBS News the investigation is still open. Jerika Duncan, CBS News, Los Angeles. Say you have a tiny apartment and want to use every inch of space? New robotic furniture can help. Like so many, architect Eric Biber now works from home. But his home works for him in a remarkable way. With the push of a button, his office becomes a bedroom. You wake up, you bring the bed up, you get to work. Pretty much, yeah. It's, it's pretty simple like that. Biber and his wife Salome were invited to test a cloud bed from Brooklyn-based startup Ori. The back of the couch becomes the, the headboard. CEO Asier Larea started the company more than a decade ago when he was at MIT. We like to think about the concept of transforming a space. Their expandable apartments are powered by robotic furniture that can unfold into a walk-in closet or slide to unveil a home office. The robotics also have built-in safety features. Just 20 pounds of pressure, say from two or three fingers, are enough to pause it and then send it moving back up. More companies are building shape-shifting furniture as apartment sizes shrink. CBS's Bradley Blackburn. We've been reporting on the cost to civilians in Ukraine since Russia's invasion, and people around the world, including in the U.S., have stepped up to help. Now we have the story of an orphanage there that has expanded its operations with the aid of American donors. CBS's MTS Tayab. They say it takes a village to raise a child. But in western Ukraine, it's a city. This is the city of goodness where around 200 children who were either separated from their parents in the chaos of war or were orphaned in Russian attacks have found a safe place to call home. All are cared for here, including infants, kids with disabilities, and many with serious health concerns. Marta Levchenko founded the facility three years ago. It was meant to be a refuge for women and children escaping domestic abuse, and still is. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed everything. Overnight, you went from a shelter, a place for women and children to find safety, to an orphanage. How did you do that? The war changed all of us, she says. I never dreamed that within the city of goodness's walls there would be orphans. But suddenly we had one orphanage come to us for help, then the second, then the third. Did at any time you think, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we can help so many. Yes, every day. Every day I worry. What if we can't make lunch? Or what if we can't buy medications or pay our staff? But every day there are so many wonders happening around us. We receive donations from Americans and people here in Ukraine who make sure that our children are taken care of, well-fed and protected. The donations, particularly from Americans, have been nothing short of transformative. Since the start of the war over a year ago, the City of Goodness has been able to build two new buildings, with a third under construction. 
Even a fire engine was donated by a sponsor from the U.S. All the funds go towards helping Ukraine's orphans, including helping them to find forever homes. Something Alexei and Irina hope to give little Mashda. This is the first time the husband and wife, a soldier and school teacher, are meeting her. What was it like meeting her for the first time? I cannot express my feelings with words, Irina says. Levchenko says she hopes to find homes for all 200 orphan children here and plans to welcome at least 150 more. This building, which was paid for by American donors, was built not only to house orphan children, but also to keep them safe from Russian attacks. So this is a bomb shelter? Yes, this is a bomb shelter made with love. Made for, with love? For, with love for children. Yes, this is a great playground. Children, uh, our kids very love this place. They don't care. <laughs> they say, oh, great, we go to bomb shelter. <laughs> it's incredible. The city of goodness is no doubt very special. How important is it to get donations from Americans who have supported you in, in such a big way already? Thanks to our donors from America, our children have everything they need, she says. And with their help, we can care for even more children. An astounding level of support for Ukraine's most vulnerable. CBS's MTS Tayab. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, the needs of the nation's black female farmers. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. This is National Agriculture Week, but the nation's largest black and women-serving agriculture nonprofit says it isn't getting enough help from the Biden administration. At the National Women in Agriculture Association, founder and director Tammy Gray Steele says she's trying to bring back the once-flourishing black and brown farming industry. She says her family has a long history there. My family was awarded the 40 acres and a mule, and my family still operate from the 40 acres. I am the fourth generation farmer and I branched off to, in order to help minority women farmers because I saw there wasn't a space at all. And still it's very a very little space um, at, in the agriculture industry as far as equity, inclusion, and even respect. It's just not there. There are so many women of color that, that are operating or trying to operate and there's so many um, ridiculous barriers. That's, that's the best way to put it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to come back to the barriers definitely because I have talked to some men black farmers about this. But you were saying your family has been all the way back to 40 acres and a mule in what state? And talk to me about the the land that has been in your family for so long. It's 40 acres that was um, awarded to my family or to um, back in during the Emancipation Proclamation movement. Um, that it's located in Oklahoma, in the rural part of Oklahoma, where our headquarters here for the organization is in Oklahoma City. Um, my uncles still run beef cattle on the property, and they and collectively as a family, we have almost 20, uh, 2,500 acres collectively as a family, but we still operate. The farmhouse is still there. Of course, we've done several remodels, but we still go there and have all of our family gatherings. And our family is the last black farmer in the community left. Wow. How rare is it 
first of all, for a black family to still have their land from 40 acres and a mule, and secondly, to be running a farm with people of color, because that seems there seems to be a dearth of such operations in the nation, right? Most definitely. It's very difficult um, as far as trying to maintain the farm, just having the infrastructure as far as being able to have hard, good labor. Um, being able to maintain the crops, um, just the insurance on the properties because you're rural, right? So you don't have the, the, all the uh, urban um, extra benefits as far as the firefighters, just different facets um, there in the rural area. And just being a minority farmer, a black farmer in America is probably the most hard and daunting um, responsibilities or career fields one want to take. So it is a privilege to still have the land. And that's because most have sold because they don't want to um, go about trying to deal with the government, the USDA and all of the little trickery that we are put up against to do paperwork. And again, that's one of the reasons I established the organization. It's interesting that you say that because the USDA just came out last month with their first report detailing all these recommendations to bring equity and farming, but it's mm-hmm. been, it, the history has been a bit fraught, right? Talk, talk to me. You were just saying about the paperwork. Talk to me about some of the trouble that black farmers and native American farmers and Asian farmers have been having with the USDA. Well, it's, it's a matter of, they, it's a good old boy system. If you're not in the good old boy system, um, things are done and resources. Yeah. They roll out the resources publicly, um, after they have been determined who's going to receive them, if that makes sense. Um, they know before they roll it out, but to make it legal and put the equity and inclusion on it, they make it go public. In essence, um, in the back, it's already, people are already saying, oh, the farmers are already selected or the big white farmers, if you will. Um, I know for sure, even with our organization, the only and the largest minority nonprofit in the world, my organization is, we were not even selected for any of the rescue plan funds. Um, there were 20 groups that they handpicked, and it's my understanding some of them are even husband and wife groups. And these are the type of things that go on. Then we come another round of rescue plan um, equity funding from the White House. And still, not one female organization, let alone we're dual minorities. So that that's something definitely wrong. There. <laughs> the USDA says that it's trying to do better. It says it's going to streamline the paperwork. It's going to hire mm-hmm. a third party to, or they're they're being recommended to hire a third party to look at all of the complaints received over years. I know there have been a couple of class action lawsuits. I mean, there's one by black farmers. There was one mm-hmm. by Native American, Hispanic, and women farmers. And it doesn't sound like you believe that this agency is doing all that it could to help you. No, I, not at all. When I say we, when I, and I speak of we, black women farmers, again, being the largest group in the world, um, when we are not even brought to the table, um, although um, Republican chairman of the Ag Committee brought us to the congressional table back in 2013 and said, look, America, look what you have. You have Black women that's actually educated and bringing their children with them to make sure they increase the number of Black farmers. Um, and of course, it fell on dead, deaf ears because we are not white, farm, white women farmers. And I say that very passionately. Um, as far as what they're saying, as far as streamlining paperwork, 
I know like our organization jumps through many hoops to show like stats, all the, when I say stats and data from Google, from our social media platforms, we're killing the numbers. And still to this day, we are yet to receive the respect level of being in leadership or we're scrutinized because they'll put and bait other black um, farmers or female farmers that are not as educated and not don't even know the outreach and technical service system. So they will, you know, pick and choose a couple to try to like um, monitor us, if you will. Yet still, you're getting all raw data straight from Google, from Apple, because we now have an app. Um, all this data where we're bringing people and doing what we're supposed to do as far as our agreements with the USDA, but yet still, it's still not enough. Um, because we are women. We literally have new farmers. We are educating our children to become agriculture participants, if you will, from there are a thousand careers in agriculture and we are able, our organization is to bring it in an innovative manner to want or uh, allow or enhance the opportunities of our children wanting to be involved in agriculture. So, and it, you know, there's, there, there are the groups 4-H and FFA. We are trying and have been trying for 10 years to become a pilot program to 4-H and FFA to give our children the same sustainable life skill opportunities as Caucasian children have, um, which is ha have had since 1914. I have researched this. I have been fact-checked by a PR firm in Washington, D.C., and I'm right on target. There has never been a Black congressional chartered organization ever in the world. And that's why we want to speak to President Biden to help us, to give us an executive order, let him send it back down to Congress to vote on if they really want equity and inclusion, this would be a change and a true sustainable change of equity and inclusion in history. Okay, so Tammy, talk to me a little bit about the importance of Black women farmers in the community. How could you help with things like food insecurity and food deserts and, frankly, poverty in communities of color? Okay, well, for instance, our organization being a very large and the largest organization with 75 chapters nationwide. If with all these women in these different underserved communities serving, um, we're eradicating several poverty issues. We literally call ourselves the solution to a lot of poverty issues. One, we're able to, we're producing food in the, the food deserts from community gardens. We have women that are literally going to Whole Foods and partner with them, bringing the food back out to schools and in the community to distribute to the people. Um, we actually have farmers markets that are taking place throughout America. These are Black women out there doing it. In Atlanta, we have a leader that's actually in the schools, goes into the schools, plus have a community garden there in the community, just as like here. We have a 10-acre community garden where our people can come and pick for free, as well as we provide an opportunity for people to come and sell their products every first Saturday of the month. We don't care if you're in farming or not. Just as an entrepreneur, we open our doors and say, come and sell yourself. Don't give a booth fee or anything because we're really trying to provide these innovative opportunities to connect more people to agriculture. Um, secondly, economic development. As you can see, we are working with children. And we, again, we start our children literally at six weeks old, our programs, and we take them all the way up to 18, which again goes back to the pilot program that we want to be to 4-H and FFA. And the funding is there. We just don't have black support, but being we provide our young people, teenagers with jobs, after school jobs, summer jobs to help grow the food in the community, but also 
be able to sell it to make extra, extra income, as well as that we serve as a recruiting agent to HBCUs or to any land grant, or, which are agriculture colleges. We serve as a recruiting agent or a bridge to make sure our children are making the grade in school because 90% of our children do not understand the importance of making the good grades and going to school between the ages of ninth and 12th grade. That's what determines if you're going to get a scholarship. For, as you can see, we're women. Like I tell people, literally and figuratively, we are increasing the number of Black farmers, period. We're women. We're going to have babies, <laughs> but we're now women with degrees. <laughs> so um, that we are able to groom them through our programs, as we're doing, as I explained earlier. And then, of course, fifth and most importantly, we're saving our babies' lives from incarceration or either death. Tell me the top thing that you need from, from the government. I need to speak to, we need to speak to President Biden. We want 30 minutes on equity and inclusion. He said that Black women helped him become president. We just want 30 minutes to speak to him to show how we could help with equity, poverty, and so many issues in America. Black women, we have the solution. That's National Women and Agriculture Association founder Tammy Gray Steele. Coming up, a hankering for hats. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Sure, you know the music of Beethoven, but what else do you know about him? Thanks to some DNA samples, CBS's Tina Krause tells us quite a lot. Beethoven's iconic symphonies still resonate in concert halls around the world. Nearly two centuries after his death, now, scientists have composed some explanations for why the famous musician, plagued by health problems, died so young at 56. Using locks of Beethoven's hair, which had been kept in a German museum, researchers say they found significant genetic risk factors for liver disease. In the spring of 1825, he describes spitting a great deal of blood from his windpipe. This is likely indicative of cirrhosis, so that the further progression of this liver disease. Scientists also uncovered evidence of hepatitis B, which affects the liver. Those factors, along with Beethoven's habitual drinking, led researchers to conclude he most likely died from liver failure. But experts couldn't crack the code behind his hearing loss, which began in his mid-20s. It was a, a slowly progressing form of hearing loss that appears to have been nerve-related predominantly. Beethoven himself wrote that he wanted doctors to study his health problems after he died. This DNA revelation may be the crescendo he was hoping for. Tina Krause, CBS News. 
Not everyone looks good in hats, but some folk don't have to. They've got so many, they're breaking records twice. WCCO-TV's John Lordson explains that one may need a plethora of bookshelves, or maybe a few trucks as well, to try and match this level of mania. Frigid winters make frost a fitting name for a Minnesota town. I always say was the best place to raise my children. It's a small community just north of the Iowa border. Everyone knows everybody and it's just a fun-loving town. Fun-loving with one very unique distinction. Frost is home to about 200 people and about 100,000 hats. Right here behind me on the wall, there's a uh, thousand hats on display. And this is so, just a fraction of what Scott Legrid has. His late father, Bucky, started this collection in 1967, and Scott took it over when he passed away. Bucky was a farmer who thought colorful caps of all kinds blended well together, like a melting pot of headwear. Did he ever wear these hats? No, he hardly wore a hat. That's the funny thing. But it didn't stop Bucky's obsession. He was part of a nationwide group of collectors, and when word got out, people sent him more hats than he could handle. So, some went on display, while others ended up in boxes. Those boxes filled three semi-trailers to the brim. Implement dealers, seed dealers, uh, feed dealers, uh, oil companies, tool companies. In this collection, no two caps are the same. But it's not all farm stuff. No, A&W, there's... A&W, I yep. saw Red Owl back there. Yep. You yep. don't see Red Owl anymore. No, there's anything uh, and everything for companies. It's history told through hats. Scott estimates that 75% of the companies on this garage wall don't even exist anymore. A sense of pride and preservation for Bucky, but not his biggest accomplishment. You'll find that in Scott's basement. So you weren't kidding when you said your dad got every John Deere hat from every state? No, no. Here's the, the proof right here. He's got all the states... And even uh, the Canadian 50, provinces. 50 states there, yep. It took Bucky years to amass this collection. John Deere camps from Hawaii and Alaska are included, plus all the Canadian provinces and a variety of other countries. The entire cap collection got Bucky in the Guinness Book of World Records two different times. He'd even haul them to senior living centers to entertain people. The easiest way to describe the relationship is he was my best friend, so... We uh, played together, worked together, farmed together. And when Bucky passed away in 2011, Scott just couldn't let the hats go. Sometimes I go looking for them and sometimes they find me. People keep sending them to Scott and he happily accepts because he knows that's what Bucky would do. Every hat makes Scott feel like a part of his dad is still here. It's a tip of the cap to a great father, a great farmer, and a great collector. Just proud of my father and what he did and Brings back some of the memories of when we went and got hat collections. Are you that person that still has a shelf full of videotapes? I mean, the kind with actual, you know, tape and big boxes that you need to rewind to start over again? You get the idea. Well, those of you under 40, you had to get in your car, drive to the mall, and go shopping for gems like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. CBS's Stacey Lynn understands and has some hope for you. Friday nights in the 80s meant a trip to Blockbuster Video, scouring the shelves hoping the last VHS tape of Nightmare on Elm Street was available for renting. Nobody has the movie I want. The company shut down most of its remaining stores back in 2014, but are they making a comeback? The video rental chain's website is back online. If you look it up on your phone, it says, please be kind while we rewind. While we are working on rewinding your movie is what appears on your desktop. The website's been 
been dark for over a decade. It's unclear when the website was reactivated or updated. Stacy Lynn, CBS News. Finally, proof that one college gymnastics coach has mastered the skills needed to be a gymnast, balance, strength, flexibility, and determination. All of those talents are front and center in a history-making program at one of the nation's historically black colleges and universities. With every soaring leap, 17-year-old Morgan Price and her teammates at Nashville's Fisk University are making history. I was just so excited for this opportunity that is like once in a lifetime. African-American gymnasts are some of the sport's biggest stars. In 41 years of college gymnastics, Fisk is the first HBCU ever to field an NCAA gymnastics team. I love a challenge. Give me a challenge. New head coach Corinne Tarver knows about rewriting the record books. She was the first black gymnast to win an NCAA all-around title. To build a program from scratch, she asked her recruits a question. She said, do you want to make history? And I was like, yeah. Price, a five-star recruit, decommitted from the University of Arkansas to attend. As I tell them all the time, you know, it's about you learning. It's about you growing. It's about you getting better each week. In their first year competing, these young women are excelling and drawing record crowds. We are making a change in the gymnastics world and that we are paving the way for the younger girls who look like us. History from one generation to the next. Jan Crawford, CBS News, Washington. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor and Alan Pang provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.